Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Read verse 2 again. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the the waters. Last week we started a sermon series entitled The People of the Spirit. And we talked about last week fellowship with Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the person, the third person of the Godhead, the triune God, which is Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we began that last week. I want him, I want Cody to pull up the, the slide that, that has my goal and my prayer for this week. I went over this last week. But I want to share with you here today, the, the, the message entitled here today is The Agency of the Holy Spirit. The Agency of the Holy Spirit. Keep on going. And so I just want to remind us, th this is my hope and my desire through this sermon series, that the Lord will work in such a way. I want you to be praying for this. This is what I'm praying for. But, but here is my intended goal and my prayer for these next what is now four weeks now, but we started last week, that we would have a deepened understanding of the Holy Spirit's work in the earth and in our personal lives, that we would have an increased sensitivity to his leadership and influence, an intensified hunger for his abiding presence and power through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, that we would have a desire for the gifts of the Spirit in order to be used for the edification of the church body. And that we would be an evangelistically minded church, which is Christ-centered, who boldly proclaims the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ to sinners. What good is your power? What good is your power if you're not affecting anyone around you? You've been called to represent Christ in everything that you do. And so at the very end of this, my hope is that we would be more evangelistically minded, that we would go out and we would proclaim the gospel with boldness, empowered by the Spirit of God. I just read Genesis 1-2. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for every person that is here today, God. I pray that you would help me to clearly, to humbly, to lovingly declare your word that you have given me. Help me, Holy Spirit. I cannot do this in my own strength my own power, my own might, my own smarts, and neither can we hear and receive by our own wisdom. So help us, Holy Spirit, to speak and to receive what you want to do in our hearts here today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I want you to bear with me here today. I'm very much aware that beginning last week, it was quite theological, if you will. Maybe a little deep, maybe a little too deep for some of you here today. Not that I'm deep, but just that when you look at the Trinity, when you look at the person of God and his nature, it is deep. And it's hard for us to grasp and to understand. But in these first two weeks, I wanted to establish a very firm and deep groundwork and foundation for all of us. And, and, and so please bear with me once more this week. The first half of this message it's going to be, for lack of a better word, it's more information than exhortation. But I don't want to just fill your heads with a bunch of information. 
I don't want to give you just a bunch of facts regarding the Holy Spirit. But as we looked at last week, we looked at how there is unity with the Trinity. That there is unity in Trinity. There's Trinity in unity. And beginning today, we're going to start looking at the specific work of the Holy Spirit. We know that the, the Trinity, they all they do things together, if you will, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God, three distinct persons, one God, one in essence. And so we, we know that uh, they do all these things together. If you recall in, in Genesis where, where God wants to make a man, he said, let us make man in our image, let us. He's not speaking to the angels. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit communing one, one with another. So today, I want to begin looking at the distinct work of the Holy Spirit. The distinct work of the Holy Spirit. And next week, we're going to look at His distinct work in the believer's life. But I want to concentrate today on the the aspect and the truth that the Holy Spirit is an agent or an executive for God. That He, it is His agency and His activity on earth which brings life, which creates life. Which, which does and wills for the purposes of God on earth and in our lives individually. And so at the latter part of this message, I want to bring it down to, to personal application and, and, and his work in our lives. But just please bear with me. I do want to remind you, though, I do want to remind you that the reason this is so important for me to lay this groundwork, which for some may seem a little grueling, is that Your understanding of God, who God is, who you know to be God of the Word of God, it affects your worship and your experience in God. It affects the way you live your life. Who you understand God to be in all of His multifaceted ways, it affects the way you live your life. As A.W. Tozer said, he said, the most important thing about you is what you think of God. The most important thing about you is what you think of God. Because what you think of God will dictate the trajectory of your entire life. How you live in private and in public. Who you know God to be affects everything. It affects everything. And so when we use the the term theology, it sounds heady, it sounds scholarly. But really what theology is, it is the study of God and His nature but it's with the intention to know Him experientially. You will experience God on a greater intimacy, in a greater intimacy, in a greater depth, when you have a higher understanding and greater depth of who He is. A greater knowledge of God, experienced in Him, which should translate to higher worship. It should translate to a deeper intimacy with the Lord. In Gordon Fee's book, Paul, the Spirit, and the People, he relates a quote that his professor had told him. And his professor said this, everyone has a theology. Okay, that is, every single one of you, whether if you knew it or not, you have a theology. It's not just the professor at the seminary. Every single one of us have a theology. And all a theology is, it's a, ruder, it's a rudimentary view of God and the world on the basis of which we live. Every single one of you. You have a theology. The question is not whether you have a theology, you do, but whether you have a good one. Whether if you have a good one. And Fee goes on to say, Gordon Fee, our theology and experience of the Spirit 
must be more interwoven if our experienced life of the Spirit is to be more effective. And so, when we're talking about the person of the Holy Spirit, and for me to quote-unquote get a little theologically deep seems contrary. Because the Holy Spirit is about freedom and liberty and power and add a bunch of heady stuff. But you will misunderstand his work in your life, his intention for you, his influence, and who he really is in nature if you don't understand as he has revealed himself in Scripture. And if you want to experience him to the fullness that he intends you to experience him, your theology, your understanding of his nature, his activity, his work, it will be much more intimate and impactful in your life if there is a greater interwovenness of your experience and your theology. Does that make sense to you? In, in, I mentioned a book that I'm reading last week, Pentecostal Spirituality by Stephen Land. And in this book, he quotes another individual called James Jones. And I think that's up there, Cody. But in this book, he quotes James Jones, who, who in his book, The Spirit and the World, says this. Listen to this. I have never seen something so succinctly and yet profoundly articulated on this subject matter. This is extremely important for us. Extremely important. Protestants have the Bible, but the Bible without the Spirit and the community, that is the church, is a dead letter giving rise to arid scholasticism. Okay, I don't want that here. We have the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. But if I read this as just another historical document without the Holy Spirit giving life, it's just an arid, scholastic document. Catholics have the community. But the community without the Bible and the Spirit becomes only an institutional shell. And not to bash Catholics or anyone with a Catholic background, the fact of the matter is, in Catholicism, you basically cannot be saved outside of identification with the Catholic Church. So the body, the, the, the Catholic Church, the community of the Catholic Church, you cannot be saved except that you're a part of that Catholic Church. But he says here, but, but the community without the Bible and the Spirit becomes only an institutional shell. Pentecostals have the Spirit... But the spirit without the Bible and the community inevitably leads to subjectivism and fanaticism. Have you seen that in your own life, in your own, interact, in your own uh, personal experiences, if you've, if you've been in Pentecostalism for any amount of years? You, you can see this, and that's why you have the outlandish uh, movements of the charismatic movement because there's a departure from the foundation of the Word of God, which is our source of who the Spirit even is. And if you, in the name of, I'm led by the Spirit, you depart from what the Holy Spirit has revealed about his own self through the revealed work of God, you're walking extra-biblically. You're walking outside of the re revealed truth of God. And it leads to subjectivism and fanaticism. It leads to an abuse. It's much like 1 Corinthians. They, they lack no good gift. That's the only commendation that Paul gave to the Corinthians. I'm glad you fall short in no gift. No good gift. All the gifts of the Spirit. The Spirit was flowing there. But they were so messed up. They had, they had departed from the foundations of what the gospel of Jesus Christ was. And he had to correct all kinds of error because the, the pagan Corinthian world around them had made its way into the church and they had departed from the truth. Departed from the truth. 
In the complete spirit-filled body of Christ, as Paul portrays it, these three partial authorities complement each other. The Spirit inspires the Word and builds up the community. That's what we're doing right now. The Word enables us to understand our experience of the Spirit and teaches us the form of our common life. If, if, if you want to know if something is biblical in your life, if something is right or wrong in your life, it's not based upon your own subjective feeling or experience. There has to be an authority in your life. And that's why we must be anchored to the word of God. The community forms the context in which the word is understood and the spirit encountered. No Christian exists outside of the community of believers. As a matter of fact, God saves people, but he's saving a people. God is concerned with the universal body of Christ, a group of people. And you've been called into a fellowship with the church, the community of believers. And you live out the life of the Spirit and his activity in your life. And you flesh out what the Word of God says in the context of community, in the context of of the believer to your left and to your right because we provide accountability, we provide edification, we provide uh, um, correction, we provide all kinds of things that allows us to walk within the proper lanes of how God has revealed himself and who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture. The community forms the context in which the word is understood and encountered. Using the Bible to tear down rather than to build up the church, using the church to squelch the Spirit, and using the Spirit as a pretext to go beyond the perimeters of the gospel have destroyed the foundations of Christianity in the modern world more than any external attacks by atheists and skeptics. We must be, as the Bereans of chapter 17 in Acts, who were more noble or fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they receive the word with all readiness and search the scriptures daily to found out, find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. You cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ except by a supernatural act of the Spirit of God. And they were saved not because of a subjective feeling, but because the truth of God was proclaimed to them They went to the scriptures, and therefore the Holy Spirit anointed the scriptures, anointed their hearts to receive the salvation of Jesus Christ, and many believed. That's not just a mental ascent. What you read in that last, therefore many of them believed, many of them were supernaturally delivered from this age because of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives who came and accompanied the truth of the gospel, and they were more noble and fair-minded because I'm not going to take your word for it, Paul. I'm going to read the Scriptures. I'm going to read the Scriptures. And so we must have the Scriptures. We must have the Spirit, and we must have the community in our lives if we're going to be well-balanced. If we're going to be a true Spirit-filled church, this must, this must be paramount in our lives. And so as I said just a while ago, What I want us to begin here today is to look into the distinct work of the Holy Spirit and his agency in human experience and in earth, in creation. So for here for a little while, I'm going to go through this a little fast. My intention is to make it to John chapter 16. 
That's where I want to land. I want to land on the convictive work of the Holy Spirit and, and let you know what you have available to you when you proclaim the truth of God by the Spirit of God. What the Holy Spirit is trying to do through your life and through my life. And so just bear with me here for a little bit. As I, as I said, every one of you has a theology. It's either good or bad. And here's what, here's what I want to substantiate here for a little while concerning the person of the Holy Spirit in a little more depth than last week. And so as you read throughout the Old Testament and you transition into the New Testament, the Holy Spirit's activity is throughout the entire thing. And as we read in Genesis 1-2, it says that the earth was, was without form and void, and the Spirit of the Lord brooded or hovered over the waters. We'll come back to that scripture at the very end. But you can see, we know from John chapter 1, that Jesus being the Word, the world was made through the Word. That the Father, He made the world, the universe, through the Son. And we see that the Holy Spirit is there with the Father and the Son. We see the Holy Spirit's work throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit, He has several names. And this is very important because I myself get confused. Is the Spirit of the Lord, is the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of Christ, is that all the same thing? The same person? We're going to explain that here in a moment. But he is called the Spirit of God more than any other term in the Old Testament. He is called the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Lord. There's only two instances in the Old Testament where he's actually called Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Only two instances. But oftentimes he's referred to as the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Lord. Acting as the executive or the agent for God working in every sphere, both physical and moral. And if you recall in Luke chapter eleven twenty, it was Jesus said, "By the finger of God, this deliverance comes. By the Spirit, Jesus did everything that He did." We have to understand that the Holy Spirit. I said this last week. This is extremely important. The Holy Spirit is not an experience. The Holy Spirit is a person whom you experience. And as I said last week, that's extremely different and important for you to understand because when we come down the, to the altar, for those of us who greatly appreciate the work of God in the altar and a tradition of coming and submitting to the Lord and being touched by the Holy Spirit, I, it's a wonderful experience, isn't it, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and touches you and, and moves in your life in ways that you can't even fathom or think, and nobody can see it, but He's doing wonderful, marvelous things in your life, and you're just there at the altar by yourself, or you're in your room by yourself, and the Holy Spirit is doing these wonderful things. And when you get up from that time of prayer and communion with the Lord, you're so refreshed, revitalized, encouraged. Can you attest to that? But I want you to understand that what just happened, you didn't have an experience. The Holy Spirit is not an experience. Like a theme park ride. Because he's a person. The Father is not an experience. He's a person. I experience the living God. I experience Father. I experience Son. I experience Holy Spirit. He's a person that I can experience. 
But I hope you understand where I'm going with this because it's of utmost importance that we understand we are communing with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're communing with a person, and he has personality. I'll explain that here in a little while. He is divine. He is God. And for many of us, as simple as that is, there are many people, even um, theologians who, who, who are liberal theologians would deny that the Holy Spirit is God. But he is divine. He is eternal. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. Everything that the Father and Son are, so is He. He is placed in coordinate rank with the Father and the Son throughout Scripture. He is a person. And when we say He's a person, not in the sense of a human being, but He has personality. And the attributes of personality involve mind, will, and feeling. And throughout the Scriptures, we see that He reveals, He teaches, He witnesses, He intercedes, He speaks. He commands and he testifies. The Spirit does all this. The Spirit is grieved. The Spirit has joy. The Spirit commends and intercedes for us and speaks for us. He can be grieved. He can be lied to. And he can be blasphemed. And I think the reason that he's most misunderstood is because throughout Scripture... His operations are oftentimes invisible, secret, and eternal. I I read recently in a book that somebody said, the Father I understand, the the, the Son I understand, but the Holy Spirit, he's just this gray oblong blur to me. And I think many people feel that way. How how do I give formation to the Holy Spirit? And so he's kind of, you know, dethroned from the place he rightly deserves but, but throughout Scripture, he's, he's always operating in, in an invisible sphere, in secret, and internally. Like even right now, the Holy Spirit is working in your life right now. And he's helping me right now. Oh, God, help me. He's helping me right now to preach. You can't see that. You can't see that. You can only see his effects outwardly. But I also want you to know a key understanding of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and this is important because when he moves in your life, he wants to do this through your life. What the Holy Spirit's desired to do and what he has been commissioned to do, what he longs to do, he always comes in the name of and as representing another, that is Jesus Christ. He is hidden behind the Lord Jesus Christ and in the depths of our inner man. He never calls attention to himself, but to the will of God and the saving work of Christ. And so, the Holy Spirit's desire is to exalt Christ in everything he does. He wants to glorify Christ. He wants to teach you. He wants to lead you into all truth. He only speaks what he hears the Son speak. And so, when he's moving in your life, what is his desire for your life personally? To exalt the person of Jesus Christ. So whatever you experience in the Holy Spirit, know that his desire is always to lift up Jesus and encourage you and point you to him. He's still equal with the Son, but there's glad submission, there's joyful intimacy, and there's willful deference between the Godhead. They're all equal. He's called the Spirit of God. He's called the Spirit of Christ. When you read throughout the New Testament, the Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. And the reason he's called the Spirit of Christ is because he is so closely identified with Jesus. He's so intimately and closely identified with with Jesus. He's sent in the name of Jesus, and he is a spirit sent by Jesus. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and is sent by the Son. That is kind of the, the, the formation that we see in the Gospel of John. Let me hurry up here. 
He's called comforter and helper in John. We're going to look at that next week. The Holy Spirit, he's called the Holy Spirit continuously throughout the New Testament. And he's called the Holy Spirit because he's primarily concerned with making you more like Jesus. And he does that by his power and by his sanctifying work. And so he is called holy. He is the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is the interpreter for Jesus Christ. How many of you have ever uh, talked to somebody who's from a different country and you had to use a, a mediator, that is a, a, an interpreter for you? You ever had to do that? Sometimes you get on the phone and you're like, I need an interpreter for this, for this phone call I have right now. I'm trying to figure out how to fix my computer. <laughs> but you, the Spirit is the divine interpreter. He comes beside you and he teaches you and he helps you and he guides you. He's called the spirit of truth. He's called the spirit of grace because he moves upon people's lives. Even before they receive the gospel, he longs to pour his grace out into people's lives. He's called the spirit of life because he brings spiritual life. He's called the spirit of adoption. When we come and we are delivered from sin and we are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ through faith in him, we are adopted into the family of God. He's called the spirit of adoption. One of the reasons as well that the Holy Spirit is sometimes misunderstood because we oftentimes only associate him with the symbols that we see in the Word of God. In the Word of God, he's, he's described as a fire. He's described as a wind. He's described as water. He's described as a seal, as oil, as the dove. And, and, and for this reason, sometimes it's hard to put a real understanding around the person of the Holy Spirit. We always associate him with these symbols. But these symbols just represent what he does, what his operation is. So where fire purifies and makes right, he does that. Wind, it regener it's, a it's, a it's a symbol of re his regenerative, regenerative work. Water is a symbol of the fountain of living water, the purest, the best which is the river of life flooding and gushing over our souls. He's called the seal of the Holy Spirit. He's, des he's described as being a seal because when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and transforms your life, he puts his seal of ownership upon you. What makes every single person here different from any other person who's not in Christ is that the seal of the Holy Spirit is upon you. And by his seal, by the seal of the Holy Spirit, it indicates ownership and it indicates security. That you are only possessed by God through the seal of the Holy Spirit, and then you are secure in His kingdom. You're secure in Him. He's often symbolized as oil, where oil is commonly used for food and light and lubrication and healing and soothing of the skin. And it speaks of His usefulness and, and fruitfulness and beauty and life and transformation. And the Holy Spirit, he strengthens, he illumines, he liberates, he heals, he soothes. He's described as a dove, which represents gentleness. And so Christ spoke of the dove as the embodiment of the harmlessness, which was characteristic of his own disciples. Be as wise as a, as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. And the Holy Spirit rep is represented as a dove. You see his activity in the Old, the Old Testament. And, and his operation has always been there. It's not that the Holy Spirit was, was not given, given in such a way that he, he, didn't exist, he didn't exist to the degree that he did then and now he, he exists more so now. It's, it's just to the point of his, his operation and activity. It has increased and has changed 
when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. So you see in the Old Testament that he is the creative spirit where he actually helps as he's brooding over the waters, hovering over the waters. He brings life into creation. And God breathed into Adam and Eve, Adam and made him a man. He breathed his spirit into him. You see throughout the Old Testament, as we study the history of Israel, that the Holy Spirit, he inspired certain individuals, didn't he? But he didn't inspire all the people of Israel. He would come upon people in special ways, and he would anoint workers for God, people like Joseph or Moses or Joshua or Samson or Saul. He would anoint them for a special work and task for the people of God. And then he would anoint his prophets, speakers for God, and the prophets would speak directly for God, and they were anointed by the Holy Spirit. And you see, he does have a work in regeneration in the Old Testament, but not to the degree that we see in the New. He is generally bestowed upon people. What, what differentiated the people of Israel in the wilderness the moment they left was the presence of God. That's why Moses said, or when, when God said, I'm going to send an angel with you, I'm not going to send my presence. And Moses said, I will not go unless your presence goes with us. What made the people of Israel different from anybody else was they had the presence of God. The presence, that's what the ark was all about. That's what the Holy of Holies was all about. And I'm very excited to bring some of these things out next week when it comes to the presence of God and his activity in our life. Let me carry on. But then when we look in the New Testament, we see the Spirit's work in Jesus Christ. Was Jesus fully man? Yes. Was Jesus fully God? Yes. And he made himself limited to the human experience or subject to the, the human experience, and he made himself dependent upon the, the Father, and he operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. He operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, at his very birth, who overshadowed Mary and conceived him in her room? The Holy Spirit. From the very beginning, he is associated with the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, the, the dove comes down, the Father speaks, and the, the Holy Spirit alights upon him. Throughout his ministry, when he, when he uh, spoke in Luke chapter 4, and he pulled out the scroll in Isaiah, and what is the first thing he said? The Spirit of the Lord has what? Anointed me. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. Jesus desired the Spirit of God. It was the Spirit of God that allowed him to go to the cross and die for me and for you. And it was that same Holy Spirit that rose him from the dead. The same Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, he dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And not only that, but through his ascension, we now have access to the same Spirit that through his ascension, I think sometimes we don't put as much emphasis on the importance of the ascension, but it's all thanks to Jesus leaving, physically leaving the earth, that the Holy Spirit has now come down, beginning on the day of Pentecost. So turn with me to John chapter 16. Let, let me get down to your personal life here.
And so the book of John, the gospel of John, chapters 14, 15, 16, have wonderful teaching by Jesus on the person of the Holy Spirit. Wonderful, beautiful truths that are revealed to us through the teaching of Jesus in his upper room discourse. That is, during the Last Supper with his disciples. He's speaking, chapters 13, 14, 15, he's speaking to his disciples in 16. And so he talks about, in previous chapters, his activity in the believer's life. And we're going to look at that next week in greater depth, in his presence in your life. And what it means to, to, to live with the presence of God in your life. But I want to talk about his operation, his agency through your life here for a little while. I, I want to talk about what the Holy Spirit comes to do in all of humanity. And what he can do through you by the proclamation of the truth of the word of God. Any of you have lost family members? Any of you have lost friends? you have a lost neighbor? you have a lost an unbelieving spouse, an unbelieving family member, friend, co-worker. There's people all around us who are, who are dead in their sins and they need Jesus Christ. And it's going to be through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through your life, that that is going to be accomplished. So I want to emphasize that here for a little while. Look here, John 16, verse 7. It's on the screen if you don't have your Bible. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. In just a little while, Jesus is going to be crucified. Three days later, he's going to rise from the dead, and for 40 days, he's going to be amongst his people in his glorified body. And, he, and then he tells us when he goes, when he ascends, the Holy Spirit, he's going to send down. And here's what the Holy Spirit does, not even getting into his activity in your life as a believer. Here's what he does. He comes to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment to come. The Spirit will act as Christ's prosecuting attorney, so to speak. He works to secure a divine conviction against the rejectors of Christ. This is what uh, Meyer Perlman says. And in this sense, the word convict, it actually means convince or refute. It is the Holy Spirit's desire to convince those who are dead in their trespasses and sins to convince them of the reality of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And no one can be saved. Nobody can be convinced of this in their natural state outside of the activity of the Holy Spirit moving in that life. It's not just that this conviction announces the verdict or pronounces the world, the world is guilty, but conviction, it means God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit wants to convince and refute people of the lies they believe and the lives they live. It's kind of like this. Meyer Perlman gives this example. How many, let me ask you this. How many of you agree that flowers are beautiful? 
Raise your hands. Raise your hands. I think 100% in here raised their hands. Did anybody not raise their hand? I promise I won't single you out. Raise your hand. This is for you, Billy. No. Universally, and I think because of the way God has made us, universally, we have certain um, models of beauty in nature and in life. And I think most everybody, except Billy here, thinks flowers are beautiful. But imagine if somebody says, I don't think flowers are beautiful. I think they're disgusting and they're so hideous and ugly. How do you convince them that a rose is beautiful? Is it by telling them, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Look, 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 here it is. It's beautiful, it's beautiful. Smell it. No, I think it's, I don't think it's beautiful. And you can't tell me it's not beautiful. H- how would you convince this person No, it is beautiful. Everybody else agrees. This person, it's because of their inability, they would argue their lack of appreciation of the beauty. They have an inability to appreciate the beauty that everyone else sees. Now, I will say this. This mess and garbage they call abstract art that sells for millions of dollars is trash. I'll talk to you later, Eddie. I mean, come on. You walk into a gallery, and it's, it's a white canvas with a single black dot. You're like, what does this mean? Wow, this is really deep. No, it's not. It's a black dot. Or somebody, some millennial took a bucket of paint and threw it onto a canvas and said, here, this is worth $10,000. And this actually, that, that problem right there, it actually is rooted in a spiritual problem. The standards of beauty and the bowing down to a subjectivism that I'm going to look at here in a little while. But more and more you see, I'm like, what is that? That's, that doesn't mean anything, man. Quit trying to be deep. But a sense of beauty must be awakened within this person. Something outside of them has to, be a, has to awaken within them a sense of beauty. He must be convinced of the beauty of the flower or the painting. And in like manner, the darkened mind and soul sees nothing in spiritual truths until convinced and awakened by the Holy Spirit. The world in its natural state, all of us are born into our sin. We are all born sinners. Now, it doesn't mean little children are going to hell. It means that we have the sin nature in us, and we come to the point where we're accountable for ourselves, whatever the age that is, and we can answer for ourselves, and we have a conscience. We are accountable for our actions, and all of us are found guilty before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us are natural-born enemies of God. We're made in the image of God because we were made to have fellowship with Him. But we rejected God in the garden. We fell, and our spirit fell in subjection to our flesh. And now all of humanity is ruled and governed by their flesh, 
which longs to be satiated, and the lust of the flesh are always seeking how to be satisfied, and the world and the devil is working against all of us. And so the world, they are blinded by the God of this age. Who is the God of this age? It's Satan. His domain is this world, this world system. They are blinded by the God of this age. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They are enemies of God. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul beautifully, and actually Romans 1 through 3, Paul makes the case that both Jew and Gentile are found wanting in the presence of God. Everyone is found guilty in the presence of a holy God. And he says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what the world does. It suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. They cannot understand spiritual truths because their spirits are dead. And although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the state of all of us before Christ. And this is the state of the world when you walk out there. When you go eat at a restaurant. The problem is this. Men's hearts are darkened by sin. But they don't even realize it. You're telling them the rose is beautiful and they're saying, I don't see it. How do you convince them? How do you convince them that they are sinful, that they do not know God? It's by the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit comes to convict. Speaking of our culture, and I think you see this more than ever. You know, we've looked at the Trinity last week. There is a postmodern secular Trinity. Did you know that? Here's what Gordon Fee says in his book. There is relativism, there is secularism, there is individualism. And whether if you know it or not, it's rampant in our society. Rampant. This is the holy trinity, if you will, of secular postmodern culture. Relativism. It is my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. And there's a departure from all objective moral truth. There's a departure from all authority. There's a departure from what is right and what is wrong. And now right is called wrong and wrong is called right. Because everyone does what is right in their own eyes. But your heart, it is deceitful. And above all else, desperately wicked. Don't follow your heart. Your heart will lead you astray. So it's relativism. That's why we can redefine marriage. That's why we can redefine biology. We can say, no, there's not two genders. There's 50. Why? Because I feel like it. It's all relative. What is right and wrong is constantly shifting. The the target of what is right and what is wrong is constantly shifting. I don't know if I'm offensive uh, tomorrow because I call somebody something that wasn't offensive yesterday. The target is constantly moving in our culture, isn't it? It's relativism. And this this is worshipped. You're considered tolerant. 
Because, yeah, you do you, you do your truth, I'll do my truth. And when somebody says there's no such thing as objective truth, was that an objective truth claim? Think about this. There's no such thing as truth. Was that true? It's a self-defeating argument. But this is rampant through our society. And this is why you cannot argue people, argue with people using a biology textbook. Say, no, 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 there are two genders. No, 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 this is what marriage is, a man and a woman. And you can go over the, the practical implications and the biblical implications. And, and whatever it is, no, this is why murder is wrong. Abortion is wrong. This is why homosexuality is wrong. This is why adultery is wrong. And depending on who you're talking to, it's right or it's wrong, depending on the person. This society worships at the altar of relativism. And we are seeing the downfall, I'm telling you, we're seeing the downfall of our society because this is worship. We are departing from our moorings, which are founded in something that is more authoritative than your feelings. And when you depart from that, Anything is possible. Same-sex marriage, it's a right. Well, what about polyamorous marriages? Who says that I can't have five wives? I think it's okay. We love each other. It's nonstop, isn't it? Nonstop, based upon my feelings. The third person of this secular trinity, if you will, or this postmodern trinity is secularism. That is the rejection of religion as an influence on society. We see now, more than ever, a departure from a biblical worldview in our society. The Constitution was formed on the principles of the Word of God. All those men who signed the Constitution were not born-again Christians. But they understood the basic understanding that there has to be some sort of authoritative source for this life and liberty that we are granting to this people. It has to come from God. And though they weren't born-again Christians, it was the principle of this is an, there is an authority in what is good and what is bad. But when you remove morality from the landscape of politics or education, and you say we don't need religion, specifically in America, a Judeo-Christian world view, we're just going to reject religion. And, and a lot of people are upset that prayer is no longer in school. I'm not too concerned with that because there's not prayer in people's homes. But it is an indication of the secular influence, isn't it? Because everybody said, yeah, what's wrong with prayer in schools? Everybody accepted it. It's wonderful. doesn't mean all those people were Christians who, who prayed, who even stood up for it, but it was understanding that we're viewing our society through a biblical worldview, a Judeo-Christian worldview. Now we've thrown, totally thrown that out, haven't we? Totally thrown it out. And now it's all secular. You want to know what happens to a secular society? Look at China. Look at Russia. When you unhinge yourself from truly a biblical worldview, and then there is individualism. Hang with me. There's individualism. Now, in America, we, we, we value individualism. That is, that we all, have, we all can individually make a way for ourselves. That's not what I'm talking about here. That's not what I'm talking about here. 
We all have personal responsibility. We all will answer for ourselves. God saves individuals. But in the context of the church, you are saved into community. And you don't live unto yourself. You have influence around, in people around you. you your, your life has impact. The decisions that you make, it has impact on the people around you. But individualism says, forget everybody else. I am God. I will be me. And I will seek my own narcissistic self-interest and self-centeredness desires. And the chief end is my happiness. And this is especially fatalistic when it comes to the community of believers. And so this is what we're working against, people. Can you agree? Do you see this? We see people in bondage to drugs and alcohol and sexual sin. We see people full of hate on the screens of our TV. We see so much division. And the solution is not to win an argument. The solution is not for you to increase your debating skills. The solution is the Spirit of God. The solution to this society is proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit says, I can bless that. And it's in the presence of the truth which is exalted and in the full counsel of the revealed word of God that the Holy Spirit says, I can use this to convince this person who is otherwise dead and blinded, I can convince them, number one, of their sin. I can convince them of sin. It's not sins, sin. It is the primary sin of this, sin of unbelief. This is what Jesus is speaking about. He's not talking about the multitude of sins a sinner may commit. He's talking about, ultimately, the sin of unbelief. All sins are forgiven. Is the sin of unbelief forgiven? No. Because faith comes through belief. And he says, the Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin. He comes to tell you that you do not have relationship in Jesus Christ. It all comes to the, the foundation of belief in or lack of belief in Jesus Christ. Look here at verse 9. Of sin, why? Because they do not believe in me. There's only two, two kinds of people in this world. Those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. And those who are in Christ, they have come to saving faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit's task to convict this person, to convince them that, yes, you have sins, but ultimately your greatest sin is that you do not acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the Savior of the world. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. You don't kind of believe in Jesus. You don't kind of implement some things of the Word of God. You don't kind of live by the principles of the Word of God. You're either in Christ or you're not. You either have come to a saving relationship by believing upon Him and laying your life down, or you haven't. And the Holy Spirit comes to convince. It was by unbelief where Eve took a bite of the fruit when the serpent said, Did God really say, and will you not surely die? She did not believe 
God. And it was because of unbelief that the Israelites were kept out of the promised land. But once unbelief is out of the way, the cleansing blood of the Savior can take care of all the other sins. Once I come to believing faith in Jesus Christ, He cleanses me of all those multitude of sins. But He wants to bring me to a saving relationship in Jesus Christ. Let me hurry up here. Come, come help me. He convinces us of the world of righteousness. Man, there is a lot of virtue signaling, signaling on social media today. And the way that man operates is to always cover up our shortcomings, to highlight our supposed strengths, and make ourselves feel good about our own selves. What the world needs to be convinced of is that I don't care how much money you give to charity. I don't care how many hours you pray a day. It doesn't matter what good deeds you do. If you're trusting in your own righteousness, it is as filthy rags and it cannot save you. To trust in your own works and your own righteousness, it will not save you. And it's the desire of the Holy Spirit to bring people to the end of themselves, to let them see who they really are, a wretched sinner who needs the mercy of God. When you realize you're bankrupt in your own self, and your own good deeds, and your own righteousness, and then you come to the realization there's only one righteous, and that is who? Jesus Christ. There's only one who walked this earth, who was perfect, who was sinless, who was righteous. And the Holy Spirit wants to convince the world that you are not righteous. You're sinful. But there is one who is righteous. And if you trust in Him, if you place your faith in Him, you will be saved. You will be saved. And the resurrection ultimately proves his divinity and righteousness and his ascension to the right hand of the Father as intercessor for us. He was who he said he was by the fact that he rose from the dead. Amen? He has power over death and the grave. And he has power over your sin. He alone is righteous. The world wants to trust in its own righteousness but he wants to convince the world that there's only one righteous, and then he wants to convince the world of judgment. He wants to convince, convince the world's system and the way that people live their lives. He wants to convince them that they really are under the sway of the God of this world, that every person outside of Christ is under sway of the God of this age, that their eyes have been darkened by the devil. Jesus told the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. You're of your father, the devil. And, and, and God has declared Satan to be a defeated foe and that he will ultimately be judged and cast into the lake of fire. And the Holy Spirit desires to convince the person that if you are identified with the God of this age, this is your same demise. This is your same demise. The world wants to glaze over the truth of judgment and God's wrath, but it is real. The God of this world is judged, and so any of those who are in his sway shall be judged 
as well. But aren't you thankful that the Holy Spirit comes? And just as he brooded or hovered over the waters, he is in this dark and formless land of people's lives. He desires to come and intervene and bring formation and bring life. He's hovering over people's lives. He's hovering over your very life right now. And what he longs to do through you, by you proclaiming the gospel, the truth of the gospel to your coworker, to your spouse, to your family members, that when you proclaim the word, not trying to win an argument, but proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, he, he can come and he can work with that. He can convince them the rose is beautiful. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit comes. And he brings order to disorder. He brings light where there was darkness. He's hovering. He's brooding. He desires to move in people's lives. And he wants to move through your life. That is his desire. He is the agent of God. The executive of God here on earth. And people need the hope of Jesus. They don't need your argument. They don't need your political party's argument. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's the only thing that will save. That's the only thing. Would you stand with me? Would you just begin to pray in your own way? Would you just begin to pray, ask the Lord to come here right now, ask the Holy Spirit to move? Help us, Jesus. Help us, Jesus.